Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. Today, we're looking at the question, what has Christianity ever done for us? We wanted to start our podcast by working with the assumption that Christianity has nothing to offer people in a secular, enlightened, post-religious landscape. Maybe that's you. Maybe this question is getting at something you feel deep down inside. That Christianity, and organised religion for that matter, is something that we've outgrown as a society, and frankly should have died out a long time ago, being nothing but a force for evil, repression and cruelty. Surely if we just left it behind we'd have a fairer, freer, funner, more tolerant, more peaceful, more inclusive, more vibrant world. Is that you? Will we get that? Maybe you just don't know much about Christianity at all, much less the historical impact. Maybe you're fairly apathetic and just listening to be polite to a friend who sent it to you. That's cool too. Hope you'll stick it out and maybe even come along for future episodes too. Maybe you're someone who is exploring or checking out Christianity and spirituality and faith, but you don't know how it works in the real world or even where to start on your journey. Well, this will be great for that too, and we're glad you found us. Over the course of this show, we'll be interviewing a diverse range of experts and interesting people that will help us explore some of the deepest questions out there. Many of them will be Christians responding to common objections to the Christian faith. Others will be people sharing interesting tidbits on niche topics or cultural trends. And we'll even, from time to time, have some people on who are skeptics, doubters, atheists, agnostics, and everything in between to help us hear and think through stories of unbelief as well. To be a place for us to listen, to understand, to care where people are coming from, and to have a third space to chill and chat across points of difference with an open mind and curiosity. We've got plenty of exciting episodes coming up and we can't wait to share them all with you. Today though, we're going to look at the historical impact of Christianity and how it's shaped us in ways that we might find surprising, that it's the air we breathe in many ways and inseparable from the modern world and our modern values. Glenn Scrivener is our first guest and he has plenty to say on what Christianity has done for us. And quick spoiler, it's a lot. There are biblical truths that have shaped us. So as a Christian, I hadn't really thought that much about how everybody's moral sensibilities have been built by biblical truths. Glenn Scrivener is the director of Speak Life, a Christian organisation based in the UK that seeks to use creative forms of media to engage sceptics and resource churches. Glenn is an award-winning author and filmmaker who speaks around the world about the intersection of faith and culture. Originally from Australia, he was educated at Oxford studying philosophy, politics and economics. He's also completed a couple of theological degrees for good measure and is ordained at the Church of England. He's written nine books, including the one we'll be discussing at length today, The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress and Equality. Glenn was also recently inducted as a fellow into the Keller Centre for Cultural Apologetics, which admittedly won't mean anything to our listeners from a non-church background, But to people in the general reformed Christian world, it's a massive vote of confidence for his ability to thoughtfully defend and eloquently articulate the appeal of Christianity. I'm sure you'll get a sense of that in today's episode. Welcome to Deeper Questions, Glenn. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Glenn, you're an Australian living in England, and uh, I'd love to know, what do you miss most from home? Uh, Lots of things. Um, You know, it's cliche to say barbecue shapes and Tim Tams, but um, I do miss barbecue shapes and Tim Tams. Not cliche at all. The weather makes a massive difference to the kind of things you can do together with people. And, but if I, but if I had to put my finger on one thing, I guess it would be 
there's an openness and a positivity to Australians. And, and I'm not saying that uh, all Brits are closed and negative. I'm not saying that. You understand? I'm not saying <laughs> that. But there is an openness and a positivity uh, to Australians, which, which I am always refreshed <laughs> by when I go home. So, Glenn, um, you speak at universities, I gather. Um, what sort of things do you speak about and uh, what's your academic background? Okay, academic background. Back in the 1900s, Aaron, I uh, studied politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford and uh, that was uh, a lot of fun and I've always loved those sorts of big ideas. I think uh, politics, philosophy and economics uh, called PPE, it used to be known as the modern greats and so if you studied Homer and Cicero, you were studying the greats. Mm. And then they invented a, a course about 150 years ago called not the greats, but the modern greats. And so you would study Karl Marx and Adam Smith and people. And so uh, that has sort of evolved into PPE. And it's become, <laughs> it's become the sort of course that every journalist and wannabe politician does. And so, you know, half the, right. half the cabinet did PPE at Oxford. And it was that, it was, it's that kind of, and so it's much derided <laughs> as well. Yeah. It's a bit of a sausage factory. And it gives the impression of having a, a mile wide of understanding and a, it's only an inch deep. It's that, it's that sort of thing. But I've, I've always loved philosophy and I've always loved big ideas. And that's, that's been my sort of thing. And, and then I've got a couple of theology degrees after that. What I do in universities nowadays is I go in and, and usually there'll be a Christian union on campus at a university and for a week they want to put on a bunch of events that introduce people to Jesus and usually they'll do that by making uh, gospels uh, available to people, so these biographies of Jesus from the Bible and they, they print thousands of them and make them available and I'll come and speak and basically do a sort of a join the dots job of here is Jesus from the first century, here are the things we find important from the 21st century. And um, more and more, I'm finding ways of connecting those dots and seeing people really come alive to, to see how brilliant Jesus is. So that's my day job and I love it. Yeah, cool. So you professionally make the case for Christianity. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I professionally make the case for Christianity. Okay, I'm going to put that in my bio now. Yes, well, um, another thing that would be good to have in your bio, because it's a, a cracking story, I don't know if you'll feel the same way about it, but um, we're going to jump into your book a bit later, but I want to start with the story you shared about uh, a billboard and a talk that you were giving, um, something about when God shows up. Could you tell us that story? <laughs> so I live on the south coast of England, and I was giving a talk in another church, not the church that I normally go to and they they had an avid publicist and so their office got in touch with our office and said you know what's glenn's title going to be on sunday when he preaches and the title for my talk is what does it look like when god shows up and they said oh fine thank you they put the phone down like nobody thought any any more of this until i show up on the sunday morning and there's a massive billboard outside the church and the billboard says what does it look like when god shows up and there's a big picture of me next to that and uh it's kind of it would have been a tremendous disappointment for people i think <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah it's uh it's very humbling isn't it and, and <laughs> to, be, to be likened to God like that, that's, yeah. Yeah, not what you're after, not what you're going for when you tell them over the phone. Because like the, the whole talk was actually about, you know, there's this bit in the New Testament where it says that what it looked like when God showed up was actually Jesus dying on the cross. Mm. It's the most subversive thing in the world. And if you think it's ridiculous for an Australian with a crooked nose to be what God looks like, well, how much more subversive is it that actually 
if you ask the Bible, Bible, what does it look like when God shows up? The Bible says it looks like Jesus, and in particular, it looks like Jesus choking to death with his arms outstretched to the world. Mm. Um, that's a really subversive thing. So hopefully I was able to kind of redeem it a little bit. <laughs> in the talk. It, was, it was mortifying <laughs> to see that poster. So, uh, yeah, we're going to dive into your book, The Air We Breathe. What's the story behind the book? Uh, I, I imagine it's something that you've probably thought about, had conversations about for a long time. What, what was the, the genesis of it? I think back in 2011, certainly in England, there was a lot of noise made about the King James Bible because it was turning 400. In 1611, the King James Bible kind of came out as this sort of classic translation of the Bible that sort of held up there along with the collected works of Shakespeare as, you know, these these twin monuments to um, the English language and, uh, and and certainly I would say that the, the Bible sort of outshines Shakespeare and, and mm. in, in terms of the number of phrases that have just passed into common parlance and in terms of, you know, the, the Bible's light was really uh, so much of the light that, that Shakespeare wrote by. Um, but in 2011, I did a whole bunch of things about the book that made your world. And that was the title of a, a book by uh, Vishal Mangalwadi, mm-hmm. uh, who's an Indian uh, philosopher and thinker. And uh, his book kind of gripped me as uh, something that, that I hadn't done much thinking about in terms of it's the, there are biblical truths that have shaped us. And the way we know how much they've shaped us is that we don't notice them. Mm. So as as a Christian and as someone who professionally makes the case for Christianity, I hadn't really thought that much about how everybody's moral sensibilities have been built by biblical truths. Hmm. And that sort of set me on a little bit of a path. And I read a whole bunch of other kind of books and, and that led to, it was all kind of crystallized in 2019 when Tom Holland wrote his book, Dominion, yeah. secular historian, um, brilliant writer, and he sort of tells the story of the making of the West. And in order to talk about the making of the West, he's just got to talk about Christianity. And it's a two and a half thousand year history yeah. of the Bible and Christianity and, and the effect that it's had. And that kind of brought to popular consciousness the sorts of things that Vishal Mangalwadi had been saying for, for many years and um, all sorts of Larry Seidentop and and all sorts of other people, um, David Bentley Hart. And, and so, yeah, that was that was kind of the, the genesis of why I thought I should write the book because basically I gave my father-in-law a copy of Dominion and it was even signed by Tom Holland and I thought he's definitely, you know, my father-in-law is a big history buff and surely he's going to read that. And nope, nope. It's it, at 650 pages long. It sort of has remained on his on his bookshelf. So I thought, why don't I do kind of uh, Dominion for dummies and I'm the dummy. <laughs> And and from a from an explicitly Christian point of view, which is which is another distinction that mm. uh, the air we breathe kind of shares. And uh, yeah, I sort of got to work on that, and out has popped the air we breathe. Very good. And uh, yeah, of course, uh, this conversation today is going to be a lot about uh, that book as we jump into it. Um, one of the things that I particularly enjoyed about it is the way that it constantly uh, provides the element of surprise with uh, interesting statistics and clever stories and rabbit holes that go down temporarily. Obviously not uh, like Tom Holland style rabbit holes, 600 pages. But mm. and one of the, one of my favourite uh, examples you give is that the average Anglican, so the, the Church of England, the average Anglican is a black teenage girl from Nigeria. 
Could you tell us a bit more about that, um, why you use that example, and perhaps the impact that Christianity is having outside the West? Because um, there's, there's some pretty eye-popping numbers um, that you share that show that Christianity is far from in decline globally, even though it can feel like that in a lot of Western countries, and a lot of the stats do bear that out in, in Western countries. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, all the trends are heading in the direction of Christianity kind of holding on to its sort of global share, maybe going up by a, like 0.1 of a percentage point, you know, between now and 2060. I think Christianity is at about 33%, you know, in, in terms of, um, those who, who would tick a box on a sentence to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Globally, Islam is rising and rising faster than Christianity and, and will roughly uh, get to about a third of the world population as well by 2060, say, say demographers, who knows, but you know, that's, that's people's best guess. Mm. And that atheism will continue to shrink from 16% of the world to 13% of the world by 2060. Yeah, wow. And it's, it's been shrinking since 1970, really. And, and a massive part of that has been the sort of the dissolution of the Soviet, Soviet Union and, things like that. But the church in China is growing so that, you know, by, by the end of this uh, decade, there will be more Christians in China than there are in the United States. And that will have a massive impact on that nation and on the world. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa, Christianity is being like growing like gangbusters. For sure. Um, it's, you know, Christianity is a global religion. And what's interesting is it, in lots of senses, the, the most global religion in that, you know, Islam is concentrated in a number of different parts of the world. Hinduism is obviously um, concentrated in, in sort of the subcontinent. Um, Christianity kind of is evenly distributed. You know, if, if you take, you know, South America, Africa, Asia, and combined Europe and North America, you've, you've pretty much kind of split the world up pretty evenly in terms of where Christians are spread. So Christianity is the most successful, the most global, the most diverse, inclusive sociological phenomenon the world has ever seen. I happen to be in one of the denominations that's the, you know one of the, one of the ways you slice up christianity you've got catholics are the the most populous kind of de- denomination then you've got the orthodox and then you've got anglicans is the third most populous de- denomination in the world mm. and it's this global anglican communion and all the biggest uh in in terms of numbers all, all the biggest countries that are members of the global anglican family are in sub- sub-saharan africa and you know nigeria is uh number one on that list. And so, yeah, the, the average, the average Anglican is a black woman in her thirties who has to walk a mile or two to get water every day. That's, that's the face of Christianity around the world. And so I think it's really important to say that because we can kind of have a very unwittingly, we can have a very Western colonialist outlook Mm. (laughs) and think that Christianity is a male pale institution that's dying and you know, good riddance. Yeah. It's, it's important to remember that the statistics do not bear that out. So I gather the major thesis of your book is that the West has been rejecting Christianity for a range of reasons, but there's also something quite interesting about it, and that is the way the West is rejecting Christianity uh, in a very specific way or in a very Christian way, you put it. Mm. So that is from a, a Christian frame of reference. So yes. Is that a fair understanding of your thesis, and what do you mean by some of these ideas? You got it. I, th- I think we reject Christianity for very Christian reasons in the West. We'll go through the values that I, I put at the heart of the book. I sort of identify seven values that have come to us through the Christian revolution. I talk about equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. Mm. 
And what you find really interesting is if you just reverse all those values, you come up with something that is uh, unequal, cruel, coercive, unenlightened, anti-science, restrictive, and regressive. Hmm. And as soon as I describe anything that is unequal, cruel, coercive, unenlightened, anti-science, restrictive, and regressive, you think to yourself, ew, that's the worst. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that, we have been trained to believe that whatever, whatever could be described with those seven adjectives must be the worst. Okay, well, what are we assuming about what is the best? Mm. We're assuming that we should judge things by the standards of equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. And then the big question just becomes, where do we get those ideas from? And I make the case that historically they came from Christianity. Yeah. And therefore, as we find the church to be unequal, bigoted, cruel, etc. We are judging Christianity for f falling short of Christian standards, actually. It's just that those Christian standards have become invisible to us. So successful has the Jesus revolution been. <laughs> we imagine that equality, compassion, consent, etc. are natural, obvious, and universal. Mm. And they are nothing of the sort. No. And one of the ways you can recognize the triumph of Christianity is that we don't see these values as having that Christian heritage. You mentioned the seven values there, and we will explore those. But before that, a bit of a precursor, um, could you tell us about Joseph Henrik's weird concept? Because that's one of your starting points for understanding uh, why secularism has become the default option for many. Uh, and it's a starting point for why the seven values mean so much uh, to us, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, Joseph Henrik is a professor of evolutionary biology at Harvard. And about 15, 20 years ago, he, with uh, some colleagues, came up with the acronym WEIRD to describe Western people. We are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. W-E-I-R-D. And societies that are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic are not just weird, all capitals. <laughs> We're generally weird. Like, around the world and down through history, um, the rest of the world has not thought about humanity and meaning and purpose and life in the same way that, that we tend to. And... Hmm. The reason why he and his colleagues came up with this acronym is, is just to foreground how strange we are as Westerners when compared to the rest of society. And it has massive impacts on things like psychology. So if, if you run a whole bunch of psychological experiments and you think you're getting results as to what humans are like, you probably need to think again. Because, I mean, Henrik back in the day said that something, something ridiculous like um, 90 plus percent of all psychological tests that, that were run were run on those who could be described as Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic societies, which, which is only a proportion of the world population today and a vanishingly small proportion of the population historically. Yeah. And, and so we start, we start to imagine that the human brain works in certain ways when actually it's the Western brain that works in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. And Westerners are weird. Yeah. And so I really wanted to kind of foreground that. And, and Henrik, at the start of his book, uh, The Weirdest People in the World, fa fascinating book, 
he goes through all these different differences between weird people and the rest of the world. Yeah. And it's, it's just fascinating to do a bit of, bit of bias training on yourself and to think, what is, what is it that comes naturally and obviously to you? Does not come naturally and obviously to most of the rest of the world. Mm. And then Henrik, in his book, The Weirdest People in the World, is absolutely crystal clear. The thing that has made us weird has been Christianity. Mm. Absolutely the thing that is. And he identifies things like literacy, that you know that especially western protestant uh, christianity has kind of brought to the west but far more than that the marriage and family program that uh, he speaks about being an evolutionary biologist that's that's massively important to him um, the way that christians do family and marriage mm. has absolutely shaped us in ways that are invisible to us because they've been so profoundly impactful okay so what you're saying there uh with joseph henrique is that the way that we think, the way that we're wired, um, particularly in the West, uh, is very much a historical anomaly, um, and that it isn't, it's not been the norm. Hmm. So let's let's jump into kind of the the seven values or the seven historical anomalies that we tend to cherish in the West, um, but have also become global values. Very important. Uh, and the first is equality, which you share in your book. Now, most civilizations have operated within um, strict hierarchies when it comes to human life, and you quote Plato and Aristotle uh, to talk about uh, the way that they see the laws of nature. And uh, let me read one section from Aristotle that that you quoted in your book, um, and it goes like this. For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. So, Glenn, could you tell us why historically the concept of equality was extremely limited or or largely unheard of until Christianity came along? I think it makes sense if you sit with an Aristotle for any length of time and Aristotle will just point out the differences between people and they will will just say, well, that that guy's faster than that guy and that guy's more intelligent than that guy, that guy's stronger than that guy, that guy's taller than that guy, that guy's more economically productive than that guy, that guy's from a higher class than that guy, that guy's, right? And and he will just go through every different metric that that you could possibly measure and he will say, well, if you take any two people, what are you going to discover? You're going to discover how they're different. And at that point, we want to rise up and say, oh, no, but at least they are equally human. And, you, and like philosophically, you, you then say, well, so what? Like how, how are we going to derive an ought from that is? The, the fact that you, like, you share human DNA, like what follows from that morally, ethically, in, t- in terms of like human worth and dignity? And Aristotle would, would say to you that nature is teaching you inequality. Who are we to equalize people? Mm. And at that point, I, I just think there's nothing illogical about saying that human beings have a different worth to one another. There's nothing illogical about that. We might, we might not like it, but that is the position philosophically. I think when you think biologically as well, not just philosophically, but let's, let's think in terms of evolutionary terms, actually the driver of evolution is difference, right? Because yep. adaptation. Yeah, right. Competition. You need one group to outcompete another group, okay? And there might be cooperation within our little tribe to outcompete the other little tribe. Um, absolutely, there's cooperation there, but you cooperate in order to compete and difference is, is the driver. Mm. So I, I, I do think that biologically and philosophically, the idea of equality is, it's not self-evident. <laughs> and, and as soon as I use the word self-evident, people start thinking of the Declaration of Independence, right? 1776, and there is Jefferson 
Interestingly, uh, when Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay. Interestingly, the original line to that, Thomas Jefferson said, uh, we take these truths to be self-evident. He said, uh, we take these truths to be, I'm trying to remember the line he used, sacred and unimpeachable or something like that. We, we take these truths to be sacred and something else. And then he sent it to Benjamin Franklin to do a bit of an edit and it came back with some red ink. <laughs> and now what trips off the tongue, even even though Thomas Jefferson was, was by no means a Christian – you know, he he hoped for the you know the the death of of Christianity by by the by the time that he died. He he didn't want anyone to be a Christian. Um, by the time that he died, he thought everyone everyone should be a Unitarian or, or something else. Hmm. But even he saw that equality was a sacred truth. And Benjamin Franklin, you know, brings in the self evident thing. Um, I I have a quibble with Benjamin Franklin because I just want to say, well, if you actually do a bit of comparative anthropology. What is self-evident is that human rights are not self-evident. Yeah. That's the most self-evident thing. Human rights are not self-evident. <laughs> so where does this come from? And lots of people, whether it's you know a secular historian like Tom Holland saying obviously it comes from the book of Genesis and you know refracted through Jesus and the New Testament and Augustine and the medieval church and um, he traces the historical developments. But, but someone like Yuval Noah Harari – an atheist will absolutely say, look, this idea of human rights and equality, um, it, it has come to us religiously. People like Peter Singer is like, well, you know, the reason why a Peter Singer would not just straightforwardly sign the UN Declaration of Human Rights is is because it's it's come to us with freighted with certain religious, spiritual, Christian assumptions. Hmm. And if we don't sign up to those religious, spiritual, Christian assumptions – then that calls into question the whole idea of human rights and equality. So that's the sort of thing that I was uh, looking at in that chapter. Hmm. So, yeah, there's that sense that philosophically it's hard to build that from the ground up. But then certainly historically with the, the record that humans have of annihilating one another and I guess like, yeah, labelling people less than human, subhuman, it becomes very easy to, to kind of stamp out human rights uh, as a concept, isn't it, that when, when people become dehumanized, uh, yeah, that's when the worst atrocities happen. Right, right. And as soon as you say that, someone is going to say, oh, but the church have been terrible at human rights violations. Um, and the, and the, that person would be right. But the point is not that the church is really good at doing equality. The argument is not that at all. The, the, the argument is when we find inequality to be egregious and a, and a violation of something, then we are all standing shoulder to shoulder, pointing our finger at an egregious violation of something. But that egregious violation of something only works if there is a real something there. Yeah. If there is a thing called equality <laughs> that inequality is a violation of. And it's, it's the whole C.S. Lewis thing. He's, he, you know, he said, if you notice a crooked line, that's only because you've got an idea of a straight line in your head. Without the concept of a straight line, crooked lines are not crooked. They're just lines. Without the concept of, of equality, you can't point to inequality and call it crooked. You can call it's just it's just a thing. It's just life, right? Mm. And so my point with all these values is not that the church is brilliant at equality. It's that there is such a thing as equality. And if we're going to find foundations for it, I think you need Jesus. Yeah, it has to go beyond being just a, a mere social construct for like cohesion and 
world building, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so like we hold these truths to be self-evident. You could take that as just like, hey, billions wouldn't, but we do. <laughs> like, let's let's all pretend like people have these, you know, inviolable values. Make a deal. And that becomes extremely vulnerable to somebody else saying, let's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There can only be an agreement if everyone is actually in agreement, doesn't that? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, that's a bit of the first one. Obviously, um, we're just scraping the surface of what the book says, um, and I heavily recommend reading the book if you haven't. But yeah, we're going to jump through the seven values, and, and we, yeah, we'll touch on them a bit. Um, and yeah, if you want to get that fuller picture, you can read it as well. But let's let's look at the the second one, compassion. Hmm. I couldn't help but be gobsmacked after reading your commentary on on nature and the poison of pity, as he calls it. And that's because I read The Antichrist many years ago and mm. uh, and Twilight of the Idols, and I remember becoming quite uh, just numb to all the, the brutal realism that he espouses with his Darwinian instincts. Um, the weak and the ill-constituted shall perish, and then he adds, and one shall help them to do so. Mm. It's just stuff that you, you just cannot imagine uh, <laughs> in, in uh, the world that we live in now. Now, obviously not everyone shares uh, Nietzsche's dark kind of point of view uh, and way of seeing the world. But could you share some thoughts on maybe why the story of the Good Samaritan lives on in our culture, uh, mm. why it's much more influential than, say, Nietzsche's uh, will to power or the, the poison of pity? It is it is such a profound story, and you can read it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10 from verse 25. Jesus tells this story that has absolutely shaped the modern world. Like all our culture wars are contained within this story. It's, it's, it's fascinating. So, the, you know, the story is a guy is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls among thieves. He's left for dead. And a religious authority, a priest goes by and passes by on the other side. And we all go boo hiss. And we've all learned to say boo hiss to the priest who's passing by on the other side. We've all learned to see that as the wrong response to suffering. Hmm. But that wasn't an obvious thing for Jesus' original hearers to think. Many of his hearers would have thought, well, you know, he was a religious authority. He had a job to do in the temple. He needed to, to crack on and do that. And, and why not? Um, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, a phrase from the Bible, chapter, chapter 4 of Genesis. But, you know, then another religious authority, a Levite, passes by on the other side. And again, we all know to say boo hiss. And yet, what has he really done wrong? You know, the Levite passing by on the other side, leaving someone, someone else who you know, he has no connection to. Hmm. Why is that the wrong thing to do? Oh, but we all know it's the wrong thing to do. So much so that I preached on this passage in, in Cardiff in Wales late last year, and I was about to preach on this very passage. A friend of mine was driving us to the church, and as we drive under this underpass, I looked up, and over the top of the underpass, um, there was a guy in a very distressed state of mind, he had one foot dangling over the edge of the underpass and, and, and another foot on solid ground. And he was sort of holding onto the fence with one hand mm. and we passed on by. Yeah, wow. Now, I haven't completed the story. We passed on by because there was a police car you know, like down at the bottom. There was an ambulance up at the top. There were, there were people on the scene who were looking after this man. And so we, we felt like, okay, the Good Samaritan has already arrived here. <laughs> we can move on. But when I said to the church, you know, we saw this guy in distress and we passed on by, you could have heard a pin drop. It was like the evils I was getting. And, and, and in one sense, you're just like, well, why not? Why? What obligation do I have 
to this stranger. Yeah. Well, we ha- we have been taught by Jesus the obligations we have to, to strangers because the third guy who passes down the road sees the guy left for dead is a Samaritan from this hated tribe. Everyone who's hearing Jesus is thinking, oh, the Samaritan's the wrong nationality, the wrong religion, wrong lifestyle, wrong everything. And, and yet he stops and he goes to where the man is and he has compassion on the man. And that's you know the, the, the name of that chapter in my book. He has compassion on the man. It's a word that describes gut-wrenching pity, stomach-churning love. It's the word that is most associated with Jesus in the New Testament. If you want to know what the, the emotional response of Jesus is anywhere in the Gospels, the number one word that's always used is compassion. It's not used of anyone else, interestingly, in the New mm, Testament. It's always Jesus who has this sort of stomach-churning love. And he does this rudimentary first aid and puts him on his donkey and takes him to a makeshift hospital. He couldn't take him to a real hospital because Christians hadn't gotten around to inventing hospitals yet. They would, <laughs> based on this sort of story. But he takes him to this hotel and looks after him. And we now know that's the right thing to do. And all our culture wars are basically about, okay, well, we know that somebody should look after the weak and the failing. Should it be the states? Should it be the market? Should it be private you know, charity? What should it be? And we, we have all these sort of punch-ups and, and we hurl Bible verses at each other, but we've forgotten what the references are because we're all basically saying somebody needs to be the good Samaritan to some degree. Um, and we all know that compassion is the right thing to do. And yet, once, once again, from, a, from an ancient point of view, like, how do you know that that guy hasn't been beaten up by his own village for very good reasons? Mm. How do we know he hasn't been exiled from his own you know, hometown because he's offended the community, because he's offended God? How do we know that God doesn't want him beaten up? There he is. How, who do you think you are to come into this state of affairs and perform an intervention? Mm. Because nature means that this guy is perishing. Well, who are you to interfere with nature? Why don't you confirm nature? And so, you know, the, the philosopher Nietzsche is, is kind of saying that the weak and ill-constituted shall perish. And he goes on to say, and one shall help them to do so. And we go, yikes. But he's basically saying, look, if the fittest do survive, then perhaps the fittest should survive. And if the weakest perish, perhaps the weakest should perish. And logically, logically, that is a consistent position to take. Let's put it that way. Who are we to come along to nature and say, no, we're going to perform an intervention. We're we're going to reverse the effects of this particular calamity. Hmm. That would require believing in something supernatural. And I think compassion is supernatural. It is above nature coming in and, and helping the guy by the side of the road. Yeah. And of course, it's what Jesus you know, did. If, if it's survival of the fittest and the, and the sacrifice of the weakest, well, Jesus has come. He's the fittest, but he was sacrificed on that cross. You know, the fittest was sacrificed for us, the weakest, so that we, the weakest, could survive. And not just survive, but thrive and pass on this compassion revolution. And that's that's the revolution that's happened. Yeah. So it really is a massive paradigm shift, isn't it? Like it's not that Jesus is inventing compassion in that moment, right. but he's really kind of hitting hard the, the excuses and the reasons that we come up with to not help people. Yes. And setting a new standard, I think. Yes. Yeah. And in a sense, Christian faith is kind of looking at looking at the Good Samaritan and say, yes, that is ultimate. That is right. Right with a capital R. But if that's right with a capital R, then you are already believing in a supernatural value, right? And you are going beyond just reason and evidence and science to believe in something that goes beyond what is natural to something that is supernatural. 
if you're already making that leap of faith, as it were, I invite you to believe in Jesus who actually grounds that because I think Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan, the one, the one who has earthed that kind of kindness and compassion into our humanity, into history. Hmm. Yeah, so if you already believe in, in compassion, you're already a believer. You already are. And you can do all sorts of compassionate things without being a believer in Jesus. But I think faith in Jesus makes sense of why compassion is such a supernatural value. Yeah, yeah, it affirms that value, doesn't it? Right. So let's move on to consent now. Um, you open this chapter sharing the, um, the tragic story of Larry Nassar, the, the US Olympic gymnastics team doctor, who abused at least 265 girls over his career. You share some pretty soul-crushing stats there on sexual abuse. Uh, so, for example, in the UK, only 1.5% of rape cases lead to charges or summons. Uh, one in four women and one in six men experience sexual abuse before the age of 18. And, uh, yeah, of course, like whatever culture you kind of – country you look into, there'll be horrible stats to, to look out there that, that uh, match up that if they're not worse. The further you dig, the sadder it gets. But – could you share about the Christian sexual revolution and, and why we care about our bodies and why we care about consent in the way that we do, why we're basically so outraged and disgusted when we read these statistics and, and hear, hear stories of, of sexual violence and predation and these sorts of things? I mean, one thing we need to do is kind of, again, take ourselves out of the weird mindset that we have in the West and put ourselves into some Roman sandals and, and think about something like um, pederasty, which is a word that means child love. What it describes, though, is an older elite male initiating a child into the ways of sex and sexuality. And it was celebrated, was absolutely celebrated by classical authors. Mm. But Jews and Christians never called it pederasty. They always called it paedothoria, which is a word that means child destruction. So what was taken for granted in the ancient world as love was seen through biblical lenses as abuse. Mm. That's the issue. A Larry Nassar in Rome is invisible as a predator. It's not that those sins and crimes are any... Um, any better when performed in the first century in Rome as opposed to the, you know, the, the 21st century in America. It's that to see those things as the egregious violations as they are was invisible to the classical mind mm. because that's not how they thought of sex. That's not how they thought of bodies. That's not how they thought of consent or choice or personal autonomy or bodily integrity. That's, not, that's just not the way they think about things. Think of uh, Harvey Weinstein, the, the Me Too movement sort of crystallized around you know him and his crimes but again what do you call a harvey weinstein if he was in rome in the first century you'd probably call him a senator again it's not the case that we're saying christians or the church have been paragons of virtue when it comes to sex and sexual abuse we all know that the church has not been in any way shape or form but we're all saying can we stand shoulder to shoulder and acknowledge what it is that is wrong about sexual abuse. Because as soon as we're identifying the crooked line, we are also identifying the straight line. And, and, and what have you got to believe in order to believe in the absolute wrongness of such sexual abuse? You've got to believe that sex is really significant. It's really, really, really significant. You've got to believe that bodies are far more like temples than they are like playgrounds. Yeah. You've got to believe that power dynamics 
should be ordered such that the one with more power needs to serve and protect the one who has no power. You've got you've got to believe some incredibly Christian things that you know sex is significant that that bodies have integrity that choice and consent is absolutely vital. And where did these things come from? They came from, as you say, the the the, the sexual revolution of the first century. Yeah. When we say the sexual revolution, we usually think the 1960s. But I think 1900 years before the swinging 60s, Jesus stands and he and he basically he does the photo negative of the 1960s because in the 1960s, basically through the technology of the pill, um, basically the message was women can now be as sexually liberated as men had always been able to be. Yeah. They can, you know, because sex is divorced from, you know, the consequence of pregnancy, now women can be as liberated as men have always been. And so there was an equalization of the sexes in that direction, in the direction of, of women becoming um, more liberated. Yeah. The sexual revolution of the first century went in the opposite direction. It was Jesus saying, men, you are to be as restricted as women have always been expected to be. And that revolution has utterly built the world that we live in. So jo Joseph Henrik's, you know, the weirdest people in the world, massive big fat book about how weird we are. And he boils it down to the marriage and family program of the church. And right at the heart of the marriage and family program of the church is restricting and restraining and training rampant male sexuality mm. and insisting that men be tied to their women and to their offspring and that these covenant communities called, you know, marriage and family uh, are created as these sort of safe havens. And the culture that has been built from the Jesus revolution is one that, among other things, starts to prize consent. Mm. So in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, you know, the husband belongs to the wife just as the wife belongs to the husband and the husband's body belongs to the wife just as the wife's body belongs to the husband. And the ancient thinker is going, what are you talking about? Yeah, I, I could maybe get on board with the wife belonging to the husband, but wh what are you telling me? Yeah, it's two-way traffic now. It's two-way traffic. It's equalized. And he, he even used the word consent in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said sex should only happen within marriage and within consensual marriage. And there must be mutual consent like for sex to kind of happen. And within this covenant community, covenant is this, this word that means a, a, a bond of unconditional love. Within the bond of unconditional love, that's where consent starts to be seen and visible and important. Hmm. And it takes a long time to sort of roll that out into, into culture. But it is the Jesus revolution that gives us all the, the raw materials that we have such that now when we look at Larry Nassar, we say that is unconscionably evil, that is wicked, that is a crooked line. Hmm. And I just finished the chapter by saying, yes, it is. And the more you pull at that thread, at the other end of that thread, you'll come to what the straight line is. And, and the straight line is a very Jesus-y straight line. And, and that's kind of the, the journey I try to take people on. Yeah, cool. And I think that's really insightful because um, in our culture, obviously, there'd be a divergence in the way that like people would, would see Christianity as repressive and that liberation is the goal. But what you're kind of saying here is that actually there was a time where total liberation existed and atrocities occur when there's total liberation because people will abuse their power. <laughs> there it is in a tweet. Repression is good, actually. <laughs> I interviewed Louise Perry uh, on our YouTube channel recently. She's a fascinating feminist who has just written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She's talking about the 1960s mm. sexual revolution. The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She's just saying women and men are to grant elite men 
their proclivities um, has been absolutely catastrophic. Mm. And we, we, need, we, need to do, we need to do an equalization, but, but the, the equalization needs to go in, in the opposite direction, not to expect everybody to unleash their sexual appetites on the world, but to expect especially men mm. to train and restrain their, their male sexuality. That's, that has been for the blessing of the world, and it will be for the blessing of the world again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, no doubt the... There have been moments through history, very uh, recent as well, uh, where yeah, the church has like catastrophically failed in that regard. Um, but yeah, good to think about in terms of just at, at the the values level, what Christianity has actually brought to the table historically. There, right. But let's uh, let's look at another value um, that's come to the table, um, and that is the value of enlightenment. Now, many people think that the Middle or Dark Ages had no redeeming qualities whatsoever, and that Christians. Uh, essentially put a pause on progress for a thousand years uh, or so, although we were pretty progressive at starting religious wars, torturing each other creatively, and dying of rat plagues. (laughs) You talk about them actually being uh, foundational periods for planting the seedlings that would then flourish into things like modern liberal democracies, uh, universities, uh, having like a doctrine of the separation of church and state, theories about just wars, just rulers, just laws, just societies. Um, so could you share a bit about maybe maybe yeah persuade us that the dark ages weren't all 100% bad and that there were actually some really good things that started over that period um, particularly from the church. Yeah, well I mean I I've, I've had to go on a, a massive journey on this as well. I th- I think I have that instinctive reaction when I hear about you know, the medieval period. I, I, will, I will instinctively call it the Dark Ages. In fact, I, I had such bad Wi-Fi the other day. I, you know, the other day I said, oh, Wi-Fi is so bad it's positively medieval, <laughs> which, which makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> like, <laughs> my Wi-Fi is medieval? What? <laughs> yeah, but everybody yeah. knew what I was talking about because now we use medieval to mean just crappy. <laughs> and like, we don't even know what we're saying. But we can only say sentences like that if the word medieval has come to mean benighted, backwards, brutal, basically. Mm. You, you just mentioned rat plagues. It wasn't, it, wasn't it interesting that when coronavirus hit, we were all like, what are we? In medieval times? Ew. Mm. Pestilence? That's, that's a thing. Yeah, that you'd see those like crow kind of doctor masks uh, and everyone wanted yeah. to, to get one as their, their original um, PPE gear. But it's just total chronological snobbery to use the, the phrase that C.S. Lewis coined. It's chronological snobbery to look back and go, ooh, rat plagues. Yeah, we just had a bat plague. So what's, what's better? <laughs> and that's because of the progress value that we might, we might get to. That's the seventh of the, of the Values. We, we are so assured of progress that if we look back to the medieval times, it must be backwards and benighted. It must be. It just must be. And it, I think that's a particularly Christian view of history to take, a particularly Protestant view of history to take, um, because there were all sorts of theological um, issues going on in the medieval period. There's all sorts of wonderful um, theology happening in the medieval period. There's all sorts of terrible theology happening in, in the medieval period. Martin Luther comes and says... Here I stand, I can do no other, and he makes his massive turn. He's, like, he's often thought of as the, this sort of man between the ages, between the pre-modern world and the modern world, because he stands on conscience, and he, he rejects the hierarchy thing of the Pope and the Emperor, hmm. and so he's, he's this incredibly... He's very woke. He's very woke, yeah. He's become awakened to the truth, and we need to uh, you know, come from the darkness of what was before into the dawn of the new age. 
And that's a very that's a very Christian and particularly Protestant view to have. And so I think Protestants were the first ones really to look back at the thousand years before Luther and to call it dark and to call it dark in absolutely every single sense, right? <laughs> Not just that, you know, there was a Pelagian kind of a, you know, theology going on, but but that everything must have been, you know, terrible and to start describing things like cathedrals as gothic architecture. Mm. Gothic is like it – was, it was the Goths that sacked Rome in 410 AD, right? Uh, like they're vandals. They're like this spiteful description of some of the most beautiful architecture in the history of humanity. Yeah, it's gothic. It's gothic. <laughs> what are you talking about? Look at those flying buttresses. Look at the stained glass. Like, like this is the most – these are the most incredible buildings humanity has ever created. <laughs> then now you've got thousands of people flocking to <laughs> just wander in and be mesmerized to be mesmerized by buildings that we could not build today mm. it, it would be impossible to build chart cathedral today it would be impossible to build durham cathedral today like how would you raise that much money something that beautiful all to the glory of god like it like what an achievement and like stand it stand in these buildings and tell me that this is a dark age Stand in the middle of, you know, Cambridge and, and look around at, at, you know, the buildings, you know, Cambridge University, Oxford University. Like, tell me that the age that, that gave us, you know, cathedrals and universities and the concept of human rights and parliaments, like, tell, tell me that this age that gave us Dante and Chaucer, like, tell, tell me that this age is just, you know, battles and bubonic plagues. Yeah, the worst. Yeah. But it's chronological snobbery because, like, we're in an age of, of plague and pestilence and war. There's, you know, there's war on the continent here in Europe, hmm. and we've just gotten through pestilence, and there's a cost of living crisis that is absolutely a, a famine. Yeah. But what's fascinating is it's the very theology that was being developed through the Middle Ages that, that gives us the, the, the kinds of grounds to, to believe in progress and to believe in enlightenment. So enlightenment is this, this value that I talk about in this, this chapter. It's the value that we should always forward our ends via persuasion and education and never by coercion and force. Hmm. That starts to really be a thing as, as Christianity goes from the, the sect that it was in the early centuries and then it you know, has cultural dominance uh, under Constantine and, and, and further on and then the Roman Empire smashed to pieces. But what is it that then sort of unites Europe again? And it starts to be this sort of missionary movement that is uh, about persuasion, that is about faith and you cannot coerce faith and education starts to be this incredibly valuable commodity such that, you know, we've invented these things called universities and it's all come out of the Christian revolution. Now, again, as I say, enlightenment, instantly people are going to say, well, what about the Spanish Inquisition? You know, because that's a, a very obvious example of coercion and not persuasion. And I would say, mm. absolutely, it's a fair cop. Um, but once again, yeah. crusades as well. The Crusades, right, and I, I kind of tackle those as well. I do a little bit of myth-busting about the Crusades. I own what is crooked about the Crusades, and I insist on the straight line about the Crusades. Like, what was truly crooked about the Crusades is that, like, Crusades means cross-bearer. So these soldiers had the cross on their shoulders, mm. a, a sign of the cross on their shoulders, as they, as they went to kill their enemies. And you're just like, well, what makes that so egregious mm. is that they are inverting the sign that they're, they're fighting under 
the sign of the cross is the sign that I will die for my enemies. <laughs> I will love my enemies. Mm. That's what that's what Christ has done for us. Yeah. And so by what standard, you know, so the Crusades by the standard of an Alexander the Great, by the standards of a Julius Caesar, or by the standards of a Muhammad, the Crusades, what are they? They are business as usual. Absolutely business as usual. Mm. What makes them so wicked is that they were done in the name of Christ under the sign of the cross. Yeah, it, it, it puts a, a pretty dark spin on a religion that became famous for its central figure being a peacemaker. A peacemaker by dying for his enemies mm. rather than lashing out at them. Yeah. So uh, kind of connected with enlightenment a bit is the the next value, and that is science. Uh, obviously, as we start to progress through history, science uh, becomes a, a very important piece of, uh, of Western civilization. Uh, and other cultures as well. But um, you start pretty early by talking about the conflict thesis by Draper and Dixon towards the end of the 19th century. So two guys there. What exactly were they suggesting? Let's think of it like a scientific hypothesis, okay? Here's the hypothesis, that faith and science are at war with one another. They're in this tug of war, and to the degree that you're a person of faith, science has lost out. Or to the degree that you're a person of science, faith has lost out. And they are in conflict. It's a zero-sum game and only one can win. And by the 19th century, you start to see all those sort of hockey stick graphs about productivity and, and, and wealth creation kind of like really heading northwards. And you start to say, well, looks like science has won. God is dead. Mm. And that's the, that's the scientific hypothesis of the conflict thesis. And what I try to do in the chapter is just to subject that hypothesis to a bit of scrutiny. Mm. And can we do some tests? Can we, can we figure out whether the history bears out the hypothesis? And uh, ab- absolutely, I would say it, it doesn't. That science emerged in Christian universities by Christian natural philosophers for Christian reasons – approaching the world and studying the world according to Christian paradigms. Mm. And that's, that's where modern science has, has kind of emerged from. And so I sort of subject to the conflict thesis to a, a bit of scrutiny and I find it wanting. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things that you talk about, that there's kind of three foundational truths that come from Christian scripture uh, that then shape a kind of Christian uh, understanding and approach to reality and nature and knowledge uh, and anthropology and all these different things. Um, And so the three are that one, God is free to exercise creative license as a a statement about God. Secondly, the world is intelligible, rational, ordered, able to be understood by our finite minds. So you've got one about, yeah, obviously, the universe that we live in, um, that it's intelligible. And there's a bit about us that we can understand it too. Uh, but then, yeah, there's a, the third one there, science itself takes into account human biases, uh, human self-interest, flawed logic, these kinds of things. So it really kind of zooms in on us. So right there at the beginning of Scripture, because you're, you're referring to Genesis there, right. you've got these three crucial elements of, of understanding the world, um, uh, like the God who made it, uh, how the rules work of the world, and that it's intelligible, uh, and then how we can understand it from a, a position of fallibility and, and finiteness and, and these sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, could you elaborate a little bit on, on where you kind of pulled those together and, and how they bared out in history as well? Yeah, well, you, you need laws up above, you need minds in here, and you need a world out there that all triangulates. And, you know, Einstein said that the, the greatest miracles, the miracle of comprehensibility, why should the universe be comprehensible? 
It needn't be like that, and we needn't be the sorts of people who can comprehend the mysteries of the cosmos. And yet, here we are. Mm. You know, it's taught on page one of the Bible. Genesis 1 is often thought to be a kind of an anti-science text. I would say it's a foundationally scientific text. <laughs> Not that it's a scientific textbook, mm. but in, in terms of the foundations that it gives us, in terms of a laws up above, minds in here, a world out there, there's a rationally ordered, rationally comprehensible universe. And I have some chance with, you know, this gray matter between my two ears of, of plumbing something of the depths of the, of the universe. That is uh, an extraordinary view of what the world is like and what we are like. Mm. And our kind of compatibility with this world the, the, the point about God's freedom as well is, is, is really was incredibly important in breaking away ancient science and, and making the step to modern science. Because I, I think the, the sort of the Aristotelian paradigm, Hellenistic science, Greek science was very much about the cosmos unfolding according to reason. And things had to be the way that they were because of reason. And what I need to do in order to understand the world is just to reason it out. And so ancient kind of thinking was not really attuned to that kind of experimental process of trying to falsify your hypothesis and trying to contradict mm. what you had already thought. Yeah, very different type of observation. Yes. And, and so you're constantly wanting to um, test and find, find the old ways wanting and to, to, to come up with new paradigms and that kind of because of the freedom of God. Like, like, let's take like the orbits of the planets. Like it was just assumed that the orbits of the planets were circular because the circle is the most perfect shape. And that, that's literally, that was literally the reason. And heavenly bodies are the, those which most approximate to perf perfection. Therefore, orbits must be circular. And li literally that's how it is. Um, but when you start to think, no, God is free, right? So orbits could be triangular if they want to be. Like if, if God wants the orbits of the planets to be triangular, they could be, I guess. You've got to go and check. <laughs> so let's go and check. And it was, it was literally that paradigm shift that really got things going in, in astronomy and certainly kind of corrected you know, Copernicus's model to Kepler's model. He suddenly believes in elliptical orbits. Why does he believe in elliptical orbits? Because he, he actually checks and is interested in falsifying what – what he thought things must be. Oh, it's not about what things must be because God is free. And therefore, it's a different vision of, of who God is. It's a different vision of, of, of reality. And it's a different vision of humanity as well. It's interesting that, you know, in the, the debates around the Reformation, um, human sin is coming to the fore in, in terms of theological disputes. But that's also important for the natural philosophers who became the scientists, what's important is that humans have these biases and we're ridiculous self-justifying fools, okay? And so we need things like peer review and we, we need things that will correct for the intrinsic sins of the human mind. Mm. And again, where an Aristotle would think um, that my reason is what is least corrupted about me. Christians started to think, you know what? Actually, our, our reason might be the very seat of our rebellion and, and folly. And therefore, you need to start having all sorts of mitigations. Checks and balances. Yeah. 
checks and balances to the, to the folly of the human mind. So all those, you know, that's the sort of the soup that's going on from which emerges modern science. Yeah, and you see that a bit with um, some of the like debunked studies as well, where uh, reason and different factors will then produce a, a pretty faulty study, uh, which might not be disclosed, that sort of thing, and the importance of peer review. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, people will do things for various reasons uh, yeah. and they will fudge it and cheat and, yeah, uh, yeah and obviously it's... It, that's not a great way of understanding reality when uh, people are doing that. Well, it's, it's the exact parallel of, you know, Christianity would be great apart from all the Christians. <laughs> like, science is perfect apart from all scientists. <laughs> it's like yeah. humans, humans are humans and we get in the way. Yeah. So let's, um, let's push on with some of the final values there. Let's uh, jump into freedom. In particular here, you're primarily talking about human rights and slavery. And um, according to the 18th century philosopher Jeremy Bentham, the idea of human rights was nonsense on stilts, Mm. you have him saying. Uh, So far from self-evident, not universally acknowledged until the 20th century, really, um, post-World War. So tell us about Christians and slavery, uh, both the good and the bad. Right, the good and the bad. Um, Well, the bad is that Christians have uh, presided over... Um, slavery and have at times presided over some particularly pernicious forms of it. So the transatlantic slave trade uh, is absolutely not the only slavery that there's ever been historically. Um, All societies have been slave societies if they've gotten to a certain level uh, of sophistication. All societies have been slave societies. All societies have devolved to that kind of um, power abuse and treating people as products. Yeah, and slavery still exists today, doesn't it? And slavery exists. So it is a human universal, this horrific problem. But the particular race-basedness of it the, of the transatlantic slave trade it was particularly pernicious, and I and I and I think I think Christians um, need to be more penitent about those those sins than than just the bog standard slavery that has that has happened around the world down through history. You know, in Roman Roman slavery, for instance, back in the day was not race based at all, and you could you know you could work your way out of it, hmm. and and it didn't split up families in the same way that Christian plantation owners did. Yeah. And so that that is just obscene. But again, if it's crooked, if it's really, really crooked, what is the straight line? If it's really, really wrong with a capital W, what is right with a capital R? Mm. And what is our view of humans such that we say all humans are equal and no person is a product or, or a piece of property? And it was Christians who were absolutely at the forefront of the abolitionist movement. It was Christians for Christian reasons, preaching Christian scriptures, that's overturned what is a human universal. I think if Christians are to prominently own the sins of slavery, I think at some stage we've got to talk about how Christianity had a prominent place in ending the thing. Yeah, That's the sort of the, the, the line that I try to take. Uh, again, if, if slavery is so wrong, what is it that is right? And can we have a look at the history and see what it was about Christian abolitionists and the, and the the truths that they were preaching that actually ended this thing. So that's that's the line that I tried to take. Yeah, and just um, I've, I've heard before that people saying that why didn't Christians do it earlier um, or why did it happen in, in that form at all, like with the transatlantic slave, uh, slave movement. But as well, you've got just change is hard in those situations. And we know that today, like with things like climate change, that it, it's really hard to push back against it when it's such a systemic thing where there's self-interest to keep those things in place. That, that's a hard thing to fight back against Yeah, yeah. when it's just so established. 
And in those dark old medieval times, um, slavery absolutely melted away during medieval Christendom. In, in Western Northern Europe, it, it just went. It went. Hmm. And so th- th- there was a, a kind of a slow kind of ferment of Christian ideas that was, that was anti-slavery and, and that, that was abolitionist. Then you had the technology breakthrough, as it were, of discovering the new world. And that technology breakthrough far outstripped any Christian virtue uh, that the church had at the time. And, and it took centuries and millions of lives before that was corrected. And that's an, an absolute tragedy. Hmm. But in a, in a sense, Christianity kind of abolished slavery twice in the history of the world. No, no one else has done it once. We've done it twice, okay? Which is not trying to be triumphalist uh, about things because there will be things right now that we as Christians are doing that future generations will think of as unconscionably evil. And in one sense, we don't even know what those things are. Isn't that scary? Yeah. And, and it's not just – so like and, – and, that, and that's true for everybody. Right now, how, how will somebody in the year 2300 like look back – at us now, they will identify things and, and scratch their heads and think, like, I can't believe how evil my great-great-great-great-grandparents were. Yeah, and, and that um, yeah, rolls nicely into the final one here. The final value is progress. And for, yeah, for the last few hundred years, it's fairly common to hear the idea that we live in a moral universe that inevitably bends towards progress. But then you've got things like World War II and the horrors of the gas chambers. They really challenged these ideas, didn't they? Uh, And I'm sure the last few years, even just seeing uh, the political tensions in the US, uh, the war in Ukraine, the shadow of China, uh, COVID, climate change, you could continue to make the case that with all these things, like positive change is really hard fought and not inevitable. Like you cannot take these things for granted that the world will just keep getting better, can you? Yeah. So could you just quickly share some thoughts on why progress and even the idea of hope are natural in a Christian worldview? Well, because Jesus didn't stay dead. Uh, and he rose again from the dead to give that sort of twist in the tale. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien said a good, a good story has a you catastrophe. So there's a catastrophe at the start where everything turns bad, but the prefix you in Greek means good. So there's a good catastrophe. There's a good turn of events where you somehow snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and, and away we go. And what's interesting to me is, is we're still telling those stories and the Marvel Cinematic Universe cannot get away from this and the stories that we like to tell kind of have hope to them. Hmm. It has gotten into our bones that things will get better. The problem with progress is actually if you get rid of God – and you still believe in progress, well, who's in charge of this thing now? Well, now it's us, and, and it's going to have to be the powerful. And the powerful will progress, and they will call it historical inevitability. And the weak and the poor will, will suffer for it. And I think, you know, after the 19th century, which is really where this um, big idea of progress gains so much traction, and there's progress biologically, says Darwin, and there's progress historically, says Hegel, and there's progress psychologically, says Freud, and there's like progress, progress, progress. And then that gave way to the 20th century, the murder century, in which, um, you know, Stalin would have his great four-year plan and his five-year plan and, and millions would die. And Chairman Mao would, you know, have his great leap forward which led to the deaths of tens of millions of people. And so hmm. progress without God is a horrifying idea because yeah. all, it, all it means is that the powerful will say we are in the position we ought to be in. Yeah, progress according to who? Progress according to who. So godless progress is a nightmare and, and we should never desire godless progress. 
the other thing I'd say about progress is we tend to think that the arc of history is this like rainbow that goes up into the air like a like you know a lovely rainbow shot, and into the distance there's there's the pot of gold that was kind of heading towards. Christian progress is an arc that goes down and then up. It's a U shape, right? Yeah. And it's through cross, through sacrifice, through suffering, love that we get to the hard one you catastrophe at the end that and it's in the hands of god not in the hands of us yeah but i th- i think that's the uniquely christian kind of hope that we can have so i i still could still call myself a progressive i absolutely think that in a million years things will be much better right? <laughs> i'm totally that's quite the time frame <laughs> but in the meantime it might mean a cross before the resurrection yeah, yeah. gotcha yeah, let's let's bring it back to the temporal space for us mortals. Um, we've talked a lot about the benefits that Christianity has brought the West and by extension the world. But Glenn, for you as a person, what has Christianity ever done for you? Oh, oh nice one. <laughs> um, Jesus is amazing. And I think there is no Christianity without Christ. It's... It's not so much that a bunch of values have captured my heart. It's that I've always had a moral sense and I've always swum in these sorts of Christian-ish moral waters. But when you see him, you see someone who embodies compassion. You know, he is the good Samaritan. And I'm actually the guy beaten up by the side of the road and I'm bleeding out. Left to my own devices, I will do nothing but perish. And here comes this beautiful stranger from totally outside the system, and he didn't have to, but he came to me, and he poured out his love and his life for me, and he raised me up and set me on my feet and said, go and do likewise. And I'm like, okay, that's that's what Christ has done for me. He has come not just to tell me, Glenn, be kind, you know, hashtag be kind, Glenn. It's he has come to be kind to me. He has come as the very embodiment of compassion. He is that gut-wrenching, stomach-turning love um, with his arms wide open on the cross, loving me to hell and back. And I'm like, okay, so you are the origin of these other things. These, these other things that I take for granted, these other intuitions that I might have. I don't ultimately believe in a philosophy. I ultimately believe in a person who absolutely embodies these things. And so... Seeing him has changed me, changed me in so many ways. We haven't got time to go into all the ways that he's changed me, but it's it's a love story, Christianity. It's, it's about seeing the great hero of the love story and just like falling for the guy. And just like, I just, yeah, I just urge people to, to have a look at Jesus because I think with him, you don't just get a, a lawgiver who's telling you to, you know, to believe in equality and compassion. You get someone who is compassion himself. And so I just urge people to look at him. Yeah, yeah, it makes it quite a bit more compelling when there's an embodiment of all these values that, that we hold to so dearly. Yeah. Right. Well, Glenn, it's been an absolute delight having you on the show with us. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. What has Christianity ever done for us? Well, I hope you've been able to get a glimpse of the incredibly significant role the Christian faith has played in shaping the world we live in and the very things we hold sacred. Equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom and progress. They're all part of the Christian story, as unlikely as that may seem for some of those. 
Maybe you've gained a tinsy-wincy new appreciation for some parts of the Bible and the way it's played out in history. Maybe the teachings of Jesus have become slightly more interesting, attractive, relevant, enchanting even. Or maybe you're still deeply suspicious and have a long way to go before you'll trust anything that a Christian says. Look, I get it. I don't expect miracles to happen from one listen alone. And nothing we've said today in and of itself proves Christianity is true. What's more, we haven't spoken about the dreadful things that Christians have done throughout the ages that stand in stark contrast to the kind of world these values represent. Even today, Christians do things that bamboozle the mind, irk us, or make us downright hostile even. And we'll get to some of those topics, trust me. As well as plenty of other fascinating and fun conversations that will broaden our horizons and capture our imaginations. But coming back to the question at hand, Christianity has done a lot. And the man at the centre of it is the reason for all of it and has single-handedly changed the world when God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ, not just on a billboard to give a talk, but by living an extraordinary life with extraordinary teaching and then suffering the death of a slave. A grisly, lonely, and humiliating prelude to what would become the world's largest and most diverse movement after his resurrection. And we've all benefited from it. Glenn talked about secular historian Tom Holland earlier, and he writes this in Dominion. To be a Christian is to believe that God became man and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. This is why the cross, that ancient implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It's the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. Today, the power of this strangeness remains as alive as it has ever been. It is manifest in the great surge of conversions that has swept Africa and Asia over the past century, in the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit like a living fire still blows upon the world, and in Europe and North America, in the assumptions of many more millions who would never think to describe themselves as Christian. All are heirs to the same revolution, a revolution that has, at its molten heart, the image of a God dead on a cross. So it's an enduring image, and one that I hope you'll seriously investigate at some point in your life. Maybe you can even start today. The tagline of our show is to submerge in wonder and surface with hope. And it's our hope that deeper questions can provide a guided exploration on things that you care about, and maybe will even surprise you in the best possible way. Hope you can join us again next time. If you like today's episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Share it with a friend or even a frenemy if you want to do some intellectual sparring and look out for new episodes each week. I'm your host, Aaron Johnstone, and this was Deeper Questions. Deeper Questions.